When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Gabby Reese Show. It's all an experiment. Hey, As a, I, I can speak frankly, as a female, the push and pull of aging, right? Yeah. You're, you're always like saying, well, I'm developing other sides of myself and I'm trying to contribute in other ways, but you every once in a while, the, the little monster peeks up and uh, you play those games with yourself. Yeah, well, you know, I'm a man, so I don't I know. know. I still feel good. I'm still strong and my kids, they keep me alive and young. Let's talk. Let, let's just go right into your kids since you mentioned them. You had your you have Paul Jr. at very, very young, like what, two weeks after your 18th birthday or before your 18th birthday or something crazy like that. Yeah, something. two weeks, two weeks after I turned 18, he was born. So what's the what is the difference? Uh, just your I mean, all that you've learned and done. But what's the difference with your attitude of parenting? What? Well, with Paul, you know, I was so young and both of our parents had no money. So all yeah. of a sudden, you know, I, I found myself in a situation where I, I had to make sure I was making enough money to pay the rent. You know, we moved out and got our own place. And is this when um, you were tree falling when you were when you were? Yeah, I was doing a lot of things, but tree falling was one of the jobs that I, I did, but it was very seasonal. Mm. Um, so I did everything from water well drilling to being a, a bricklayer's a stonemason's apprentice to working as a mechanic to uh, carpenter uh, work to grunt work to working on fishing boats. I, I just did whatever I could do and I just kept trying to find the next job that would pay me more so that I could keep us alive yeah and um you know and, and because i was young and i had this internal drive this sense of i was here to do something that was constantly bothering me so when i was in a job like when i was working in logging i was a young man i i made it from the bottom of logging camp as a chokerman all the way to the to faller in one year which normally takes people about 20 years to do so i was making 250 dollars a day it, you know when i was 19 and back then that was a lot of money yeah. and and um but it would didn't hold me. Uh, there was something pushing me forward. And so 
the point I'm making is, is that I had so much drive to feed and care for my family as a father, but I also had this other issue going on of, I have to figure out why I'm here, but something is inside of me. And I actually had a, a, a crisis when I was a child, about 12 years of age, and I was out working in the fields. My father worked us like slave animals. I didn't have a childhood. Um, and I was out in a field. We had to pick rocks all the time. So whenever the chores were done, we had a lot of pastures full of rocks and they have to be taken out or they destroy the plows and the hay rakes and everything. So it's just hard, nasty manual labor on Vancouver Island in the cold, nasty weather. And I just really was sick of, of, doing nothing but work and I just got so upset at whatever I thought God was and I just began screaming at God saying how upset I was and how unfair this was and you know my father had died when I was eight and my mother was married to my stepfather who was just brutal and abusive and not fun at all and worked us literally from the time we got up till the time we went to sleep and um that was my first profound spiritual experience. And, and I was really, I was bordering on suicidal. And my brother did commit suicide, as you probably know. Um, but all of a sudden, from every direction at the same time, a voice said, don't worry, your life is one of purpose don't worry. And it scared the hell out of me. I looked everywhere around me. I'm like, what in the hell just happened? And so that had a weird stabilizing effect on me. And it was though the voice was coming from inside me and outside me at the same time from every direction. It's not a normal human experience. But somehow I knew there was something beyond me that was watching over me. And then when I was 19, I was working in water well and exploration drilling when the falling industry had down. And again, hard manual labor. I was covered in drilling mud all the time, long days. And I again had that feeling of I'm wasting my life. I'm just drilling freaking holes in the ground. And even though I was making good money, I was making about 20 bucks an hour, which at that time was high pay and I was very good at the work that I did, but I just knew that that was moving in the wrong direction. And normally we were working on an Island and we had to come across on a ferry and we were, I was in a big, huge international 5,000 semi truck with a drill rig on the back of it. And all the guys went in to get a coffee and I just needed to talk to God again. So I stayed in the truck freezing cold, soaking wet, covered mud and just irritated. And I just closed my eyes. But by now I had spent a lot of time with the monks. So I had a more holistic concept of God. I learned meditation techniques. And so I used those techniques to, to talk to what I thought was God in, in, in me and in everything. And I said, why am I doing this still? Why am I just drilling holes in the earth? And, and, there's, I just, there's got to be more to my life than this. And the voice came back. Mm 
And again, it scared the hell out of me. And I'm looking outside to see if anybody else is hearing this, you know, because I'm way up high in this big truck and nobody's even acting like they hear it, but I hear it all around me. And the wildest thing happened. It said, don't worry. Your life is of purpose. You will become a massage therapist. You will be able to have your own hours. You won't have to get all dirty and your life will be of purpose. You will help a lot of people. And I thought, a massage therapist? I don't know anything about massage, except when I was a little boy, I had asthma. And my grandmother, who was a beautiful, amazing Mexican woman, would massage my chest with mentholatum. And the mentholatum alone wouldn't do it. But whenever my grandmother massaged me, my asthma would go away for hours. And so I had developed this sense of loving touch from my grandmother. So when, when, when this voice said that to me, that was the only thing I knew. But for me, as a logger, as a mechanic, as a welder, as a race car driver, you know, a, a ass kicker, martial artist, being a massage therapist seemed like, like the complete antithesis of anything that I knew. Well, jump forward to 22 I become the trainer of the army boxing team and intuitively sense I can help these fighters a lot with massage. So I've started buying books on sports massage and practicing it. And the team doctor within two months said, whatever the hell you're doing, keep doing it because the injury rate is going way down. And these athletes are performing way better. And that began my career. And then I got out of the army and went to sports massage therapy training Institute then became a holistic health practitioner and became an expert in clinical exercise and clinical massage therapy and nutrition. And the voice knew. And that's when I became the trainer. That's when I knew, ah, now I know why I'm here because I feel best when I'm helping people achieve their life objectives. So, Paul, back up for really just a quick second. I, I find it fascinating that before 19, you how were you exposed to monks and, and even receptive to this idea of meditating as a young man who's trying to get by? Well, me, my mother was a Christian scientist first, mm -hmm. and I hated it. One, they didn't believe in doctors. And on various occasions, I had broken bones with motorcycle and bicycle uh, accidents and my parents didn't believe me and they wouldn't take me to the doctor one time my wrist was broken and I was a star baseball player and I was the pitcher and I was the king home run hitter in elementary school level baseball on a like a weekend team and I couldn't catch the ball because my wrist was all swollen and black and blue and they wouldn't take me to the doctor and my coach said what the hell is going on why can't you catch the ball. So I took my glove off and showed him. I said, my mom won't take me to the doctor because she's a Christian scientist. And he said, I'm going to take a big risk here and take you to the doctor. And sure enough, it was broken. That happened multiple times. But finally, my mother switched to self-realization fellowship, which is Yogananda's teachings when I was 12. So we began traveling to Vancouver from Vancouver Island every Sunday to go to temple services. And then when I was 15, my mother sent me to summer camp with the monks. I think I was there for maybe three weeks. So I got to live with the monks for three weeks and study Yogananda's teachings and we lived it, you know, and 
they taught us multiple meditation techniques. So that actually created the foundation. And plus, when I was 12, due to all the stress, I started having out-of-body experiences. I was actually leaving my body. And I actually realized I could control it. So I started practicing and I would try to prove to myself I wasn't going crazy. So I would, we had a 140 acre farm. So I would go around the farm in my doppelganger, my spirit body, and I would identify things and I would get up in the morning and I couldn't go wait, wait to go see if they were really there. And every time it was exactly what I'd saw. Skip forward to 2000, 2000 or 2002, I went to the field conference in London and the director of the CIA's remote viewing program was doing a one day course in remote viewing. Mm-hmm. And I said, I know how to do this because I do it all the time. I got to go see if I can really do this. Well, they had a contest at the end and I won the contest. There was 750 people in the class. And so I knew I could do it, but I didn't use their techniques because my techniques work better for me. And my two of my instructors were with me and all through the exercises, they had photographs of locations in envelopes hidden inside of an envelope on a big board. And they would take you through these exercises and you had to draw what was in the board. So when we'd show our drawings, my student, my instructors looked at my drawings. And then when they unveiled the photo, they went, oh my God, how did you do that? And I would just giggle because I knew I knew how to do this. So the point I'm making is these mystical experiences started happening early. But the Self-Realization Fellowship and the meditation training gave me what I needed to focus my mind. Because when you remote view or work in the astral realm, if your mind changes its thought pattern, you immediately are in another dimension. So if you can't stabilize your mind, you're all over the place and you can't make heads or tails of it. So even though I was a really, you know, alpha male type, like your husband. Um, yeah. Hanging out with the two of you is fun. I, I wait, I want to, I want to interject something. Do you yeah. think, let's say it had been like really delightful where you were when you were a kid and you weren't getting, you weren't working on a farm and you, there wasn't this struggle. Do you think you could have been catapulted from the place of like love and comfort uh, into, into this sort of thinking? I, Cause I'm always questioning this, right? Like I, I feel like, cause I, I question it as a parent, like you struggle and then you try to make it soft and nice. And you wonder if that environment is going to in fact inhibit your own children. But I wondered, like, do you think that also all that discomfort launches you into this, to this realm? That's one path. Really, classically, what I had was called a shamanic initiation. If you study shamanism, Mm -hmm. everything I've just described is classically oriented toward the wounded healer or the shaman initiation. And it usually comes by way of a lot of pain. It's often a disease or a serious accident. I had a lot of serious accidents, too. I mean, bad you know, motorcycle racing accidents, on the street racing accidents, internal bleeding. I've got broken bones all through me, six major concussions in a coma for multiple days, uh, internal bleeding, uh, you know, a long list of stuff. So I had a lot of painful initiations. I mean, being stuck to your bed sheet for two weeks 
because your body's covered in rips and tears. Yeah. I mean, I've seen Laird's feet. Imagine what that looks like when it's your whole body. Um, but the answer to your question isn't quite so simple. The soul comes in knowing what it's here to do and knowing what it has to accomplish in order to fulfill that objective. We're each dreamed into existence by the collective. So who Gabby Reese is, is not only the product of her parents' genes and her parents' love, but she is actually the product of the need of the collective of the world at any given time. And so the world dreams souls into existence to fulfill the roles that it needs in order for all the other souls to be awakened and to mature to who they are. So a person, you know, if you look at Buddha, he was the son of a king. He was a prince. Muhammad was a rich man. His wife was very rich. Lao Tzu was the treasurer of a, a library and, and didn't have money issues. All the founders of the world's religions came from fairly stable backgrounds. And if you study Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you don't focus on those things in survival mode. So if you get initiated through pain while you're in survival mode, like many people in concentration camps had enlightenment experiences and lived to tell about them because they were facing death and starving. So it brings the soul right to the surface when you're on the edge of death. And I've been there many times. And then, so you have the two paths. You have the path of pain, but you also have the path of inner knowing and the pull of the soul, which the pull of the soul is in the heart. So no matter how a person is raised, what will happen you see, with my children, not so much Paul Jr. because I wasn't as wise then, but with my kids, I'm putting everything in front of them. Musical instruments, puzzles, dogs, jungle gyms, trampolines. My kids have a $10,000 playroom. Easy. And it, some people would say that I'm spoiling them, like my mother thinks I'm spoiling them. But what I'm doing is I'm actually doing, you know, when they choose the new Dalai Lama, the way they do it, if you don't know, you know how they do that? Yeah, well, just say it for the audience, it's good. Yeah, so what they do is they take the child that the monks tune into and they bring them into a room littered with people's stuff but they have the Dalai Lama's, previous Dalai Lama's, things like his glasses, his shoes, his clothes, mixed in the litter. And they say to that child, pick out your own clothing. And he, every time, chooses his own clothing. So the same thing that I'm pointing out here is each soul, if it's exposed to the opportunities that activate the heart compass, like if one of my kids is meant to be a singer, they're going to find out early or a dancer or a performer or whatever, because what most people do is force their kids into what they want them to be, which is the opposite of effective parenting. Go to school to be a doctor, 
Don't try to be a musician. You'll never make it. Don't be a singer. You'll never, you don't, you don't even sound good. Well, 20 years later, it's fucking Michael Jackson or something. Right. So the, the point I'm making is the other path, not the pain path is the pain of exploring. And all of a sudden, boom, you light up and your heart turns on. And that's when soul flows right into the experience. And the next thing you know, your child is thriving and they're in love. And then they have their heart involved and everything to them becomes a labor of love. See, once I found my path, even though it was hard and being a pioneer is not easy, I had the inner confidence and the inner strength to face the adversaries every step of the way and to face bankruptcy and financial collapse and all the things I went through because the inside of me kept saying, it's okay, go to the next thing, go to keep going. And I got there and I've coached, as you know, for 37 years, thousands of people. And so I developed a system of helping people because a lot of people our age are still doing what mommy and daddy wanted them to do and are so broken inside because they've never lived. They've got a little child sitting there waiting for somebody to hand them a tambourine or a paintbrush or to teach them how to knit or make a quilt or whatever it, it is. Do you ever have a battle inside, um, you know, cause you've had these two opportunities. You, there was young Paul parenting, surviving, and then the more mature sort of, you've created a magical environment for the, your two younger children. Um, do you, do you ever wonder, and I say this really like as a, as sort of a base, as a, as a basic human, right? You're, you're operating in big ideas and, and different planes. But I think a lot of people that are getting through their days will sometimes reflect and think, would Paul Jr., would it have been different for him? Could I have participated in making it different? Like, do you have that? Now I know he has his own family and things like that. Do you ever react from that just you know, the basic human who goes, huh, I wonder if Paul Sr., myself, was different, it would be different for Paul Jr. Well, I have to sort of, yeah, I can answer that for you, but I know who Paul Jr. is. I know who all of my children are. I, I, I am a shaman, and I know how to find these things out, and I went and met each of their souls because, remember, Mana came when I was 54. The last thing I want to do is be a dad. I'm like, I'm ready to go be a, join a Zen freaking monastery and get out of this rat race. And so uh, I and Angie got pregnant three times. I'm like, what the hell? I don't want to be a daddy. This, so this soul is relentless. So I went and talked to them. Then when Zoe came, I did the same thing. And both of them clearly told me why they chose us as parents and why they're coming into the world at this time. Because that was the other thing. What child wants to be in this mess? And they both said, we're coming to help. We, we both have skills that are needed. And the earth is about to go through radical changes. And there's not many people on the planet that have the knowledge we have, but there needs to be more. And there is many children coming in right now with unique skills. But what about for you? Maybe what was about them entering? Because I, I, I also know it's a reverse back to you. What is, 
what's happened for you with the two of them being here? Uh, I'll answer that, but I'll finish your first question. I look back on Paul Jr.'s years and, oh, it hurts. You know, it's like I was so focused, but I was doing it because I love them. I was doing the best I could do. And, you know, I was raised in a family where my parents fought constantly over money. I mean, violent fights over money because my dad would spend all the money my mother made working her ass off as a waitress. And even though my dad was a, a carpenter and had all sorts of skills, he was freaking lazy and he would just spend all the money on pot and alcohol and, and shit. And so they would fight all the time. So inside my child mind, I had promised myself, I will work as hard as I have to work to make sure money is not my limiting factor because it makes life miserable if you don't have enough money. So that was a driving force for me. So I came, became a father thinking if I can just provide for my son so he can have the toys I didn't get to have and the freedoms I didn't get to have, then I'm a good daddy. But in my young man's mind, I didn't realize that money doesn't buy love. What he really needed was daddy's attention. But when you're 18 and you're a, a father, you're still trying to figure out who you are in the world. So I was caught between being a provider and figuring out who I was. And both of those are full-time jobs. So if I look back on it, yes, it's sad. And, and it wounded him. And only now that he's become a daddy does he really understand his dad because now he feels the force of responsibility. Now, you know, he's 41, but he was kind of late getting to the daddy party. Um, fortunately, because it gave him time to grow up. But the reality, I also, but I know who my son is. And I, I don't want to say it because he doesn't know yet. And I don't think he's ready to know. But my son chose to come back to be with me to go through what he needed to go through to realize what he had done to his children in his past life. Mm -hmm. And so he got a soft version of what he gave his children. And he chose me knowing that was going to happen out of his own choice to do this. And so it's painful, but when my son, Paul Jr., sees how the other kids are getting parented, he actually loves it because he, he says, man, that's, that's what they need. And I'm so glad to see you taking the time for them and really loving them. And he loves them. He's a kid lover. And, you know, he, he, he's 41, but when you see him and Mana, who's five playing, you would think they were both five. <laughs> you can't tell. And so it's just like having a great big kid playing with a little kid and they just ride skateboards and giggle and, you know, it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, but but I, I was I just going to say, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, go ahead. Each soul, Gabby, chooses their path. You know, when you're in the afterlife state, you're not limited to an ego uh, and to the confines of a body. You... What to keep it simple, you be, you become exposed to the mystery. So you know what's going on. You know what the world is for. You know why you're here in the galaxy and in the universe. You know why you've chosen to be here. You know what God is and you know what life is for. And so you feel 
as a soul, the, the same love that you feel for if a person's healthy, the same love they feel for their own self-preservation, you feel for the preservation of life because you realize that's God coming to know itself. And there's no higher purpose than godding. You know, God is a verb. It's not a noun. And we're each God looking at itself. Without individuality, love has no currency. So the unity breaks itself into the illusion of individuality so that I can look at the Gabby of me and go, wow. And Gabby can look at the Paul of me and go, well, that might be what I was like if I was five foot eight <laughs> and, and, you know, a man and, and really loved racing cars and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So you, you, you love Laird because he's something of you that you can see. And he loves you because he sees the woman of himself in you. And there's a sympathetic resonance there that's stronger than the challenges of relationship. That's why you're still together. But really what I'm saying is it's God looking at God and the God of you recognizes the God of the other. So as souls in the afterlife, we already know what we're doing because God cannot know itself until it comes into relationship. So God has to create the illusion of separation and play the game of forgetting the truth or the exploration has no purchase power, has no meaning. So the point is all souls come in knowing exactly what they're here to do, exactly what their challenges are going to be, just like we go to school knowing we're going to get tests, but we don't not go to school just because we're going to get tested, right? Does this, does this make it that you, you don't carry worry about your children? No, I, 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 I certainly do, especially right now. I mean, the, the being alive right now with little children is like, oh, my God. I mean... I have got to ring the frickin' bell and wake people up. You know, the children's future on this planet is disastrous from many angles, from bad food to bad education to bad mind-addicting media to parents that are burned out and don't know how to parent to, to doctors that don't know how to be doctors to, you know, the list is so long, it's just shocking. It's almost like we're you know, we're, we're fat, unathletic people walking a narrow tightrope and on either side of it is death. And so for me, it's like, it really brought a sense of repurpose to me because I was kind of like, you know, I've lived a, a hard, intense life. Yeah. And so by the time I was in my fifties, I'm like, okay, lightning strike any fucking time. I'm ready to get out of this party. I've done my part here. But when the kids came, it just brought that lightning right into my body. And I'm like, okay, I got to get back in the game now because my own children are in this thing. So, yes, I do. And, and I feel, you know, my kids, if they're in pain, I, I feel it like a mother. It's just, it's like it's alive inside of me. You know, their toe gets stubbed and I hold, my whole body hurts. And, and so... You know, I think part of it is because I've grown into my feminine that I really have much more of an experience of 
what a mother must feel. So it's activated all my spiritual practices have, you know, killed a lot of the alpha male in me. I mean, it still hides in the background, but, but I have a much stronger capacity for empathy and compassion than I ever have. And there's no one you're more empathetic and compassionate to than your own children. And they're wired to you, you know, they're, they're, yeah. it's you breathing. <laughs> yeah, I am. I, I, I've, you know, Paul, I've known you for about 18 years and you, there's something I've noticed about a lot of alpha males, which usually is that other counterbalance of, of, of that greater empathy. I see it in Laird where if the girls get hurt, he, he, I can see he has a visceral, he's like, come on, you know, he has this visceral response uh -huh. and, and me, I'm, I might have like a reaction like, oh, but his is, oh, you know, like he takes it inside. And I think people have confused this notion of alpha with hard and charging only and non-feeling, but I have actually felt like just as feminine is miss not, we've forgotten that part where women are, you know, maybe they think that's a, when you say, oh, your femininity, it's like, well, yes, it's your softness, but it's your ruthless power. Conversely, masculinity for me is, you know, hard charging and I've got this with hyper care concern and the depth of feeling. And I, I think we've lost that in our culture of real, really understanding that femininity's opposite is the, is the strongest and masculinity, true masculinity is the softest. I have seen anyway, over and over. I mean, it's just, because in a way, like a woman, we can feel it, but we don't, we have to keep going. You know, mm -hmm. like for example, if something happens, we can cry, but we, somebody's still gonna have to be taken care of. So we actually can't go maybe to the depths where with men, I've seen like, like, I, like I said, living with Laird, the ability to hold a space for the caring and the depth of the caring and feeling it at a level that maybe I, I don't person, you know, for me. Um, yeah. Personally. I, I, I understand what you're saying. And, and I think, you know, people are like notes on a keyboard of a piano. We, we, the people cover the keyboard. Yeah. So some of us are very masculine with little feminine. Some of us are, as males, can be very effeminate with little masculine, and women can be the same way. You know, Laird, you know, I, I, you know, I work with tons of, like, badass athletes, right? So I've yeah. seen it all, right? I've seen everything from the best kickboxers and boxers to motocross racers to you name it. They've been here. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I think that see one of the reasons Laird's probably so attracted to the water is because the fire in him is so strong. He actually needs to be in that environment or he might not actually make it through life. He might, he might be too fiery to, to navigate the normal world. So there you see the soul says, I'm going to plant this powerful soul in the ocean so he can mature without combusting. And, and, and you have a lot of fire in you too. There's no question. Anybody that doesn't think isn't looking very carefully. You got some fire, baby. You'd have to, to be his wife too. And so we, we, 
like alchemy, you know, we, we balance each other out. But I think that as a man matures, his testosterone drops down about 13% every 10 years after age 25 and the relative estrogen balance goes up. Right. In a woman, it's the opposite. Her estrogens go down and her testosterone goes up. So when she goes through menopause, there needs to be a changing of the pants in the house. And if a woman is, if a woman's partner is too young as a male, when she starts becoming testosterone dominant, it creates a hell of a conflict in the relationship because now you've got two men in the house, one with breasts and one without, but they're both having this testosterone driven consciousness. And so I know for me, when Mana was in Angie's womb, I started going through a quite a transition where my Kundalini started to rise up and it got to my heart and I felt like my heart was going to explode. I would be watching television and somebody would say something emotional. I'd start to cry and I'd feel it so deeply. And the girls would be looking at me like, what? I said, geez, don't ever tell anybody about this. <laughs> and I was just like, I was looking at myself going, I can't believe what's happening to me. But it was just this, you know, I think the soul of Mana and me knowing it was daddy time again. And that sense of deep love for Angie and, and just for the whole experience and knowing the importance. Okay. I got a chance to do it right this time. I got to focus here. It blew my heart open. And so that triggered uh, a strong uprising of the feminine energies in me. But fortunately for me, I'm an artist, so I can move that in healthy ways into my art and into chanting or into, um, shamanism, you know, working with rattles and drums and healing work for people and spiritual practices. So I have a place to move it for a lot of men. They don't know what to do with it. And, uh, really what I'm saying is, you know, Laird is bringing that down inside of him because that's the safest thing for him to do, because if he let himself cry, it might scare you. <laughs> but, he, but, you know, funny enough, Paul, he is the heart of our family, right? That's great. You know, I'm the, I'm the kind of steady Eddie, if you uh, will, but yeah. Laird is, is the true, is the real heart of, mm -hmm. of, you know, well, he has three daughters. So you're not, you're not going to get your ass quite the same way Laird did <clears throat> because he has, you know, for women to deal with and yeah and to look at and and such so paul the, the the hard thing about talking to you is you have so so much information but i also am i i'm so interested in you as a person and so <laughs> i i i you know it's like i want your information but i i want to know more about you so you know i think people if they if they do their homework and i encourage people um, to listen to your podcast, um, Living 4D. What days do you guys um, put a podcast out? <clears throat> Every Tuesday morning. Okay. And you have multiple books, which I'll, I'll put in all of the show notes. Um, you know, you had a ninth grade education because as so many people that can't fit into the system, you launched out of the system and got to work and had all of these different occupations, which you've alluded to, which did bring you to creating the Czech Institute. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And I, I want to tell you, as a person who comes from an athletic background, anytime on the rare occasion that I meet somebody and they say, oh, I'm a Czech practitioner, I, I say it'd be easier to become a doctor. And yeah. I, I think I think you you the Czech Institute was really important in redefining this idea of people. I wouldn't even call them trainers. I'd call them, you know, is it human movement, human experience specialists, because you're, you're looking at a holistic. Laird and I did a test with you over 17 years ago. And you talked to me about the opening of my throat. And Mm. you said to me, you, your one of your homeworks is to take singing lessons because you've been trying to basically eat your voice. Mm. to be, to be quiet, to be less than Laird had different homework, which had to do with rest. So my, my point is, is, is that through this training and all of your experiences brought you to teaching these other practitioners. And then you said, okay, they came back to you and they go, it's almost too much information. I don't know how to apply it. It's, Mm -hmm. it's too many parts. You're talking about nutrition and you're talking about people's chakras and you're talking about primal patterns and you're, I mean, it's extensive. Um, Mm. And, you know, for those people who don't know too, I really appreciate the fact that you are the one who brought the, you know, physio stability ball into training. And you know, what's funny is I was discussing this with Laird last night, simultaneously, if you figure it was like 93 or 94, this was the uh, 88. Right. But when a lot of the programs started coming out, right. Yeah. Uh huh. There was an uptick right then of, alternative athletes, the X games, mm-hmm. you know, the Danny ways, the Dave, yep. Mears, all of these radical creative, because people confuse that athletes, like I might be a more linear athlete points, win and lose those mm-hmm. athletes like yourself, they actually are artists. Yes. And so here, here you have this group that's capable enough to get on the, the ball and actually execute some of the things that you're talking about and having the open-mindedness and the creativity. So the physicality and the creativity to do both. And I, I always thought that that was sort of interesting that that timing, you know, of course came together. So as an offshoot, because I think this is, even though you've done it many times, I do think it is such an important message. So when you had all of your practitioners coming back to you and saying, hey, listen, we're almost overarmed. How do we take all of this information and?" sort of really execute. And that is how you came up with the, you know, the last four doctors you're ever going to, to, to need to know. And, and if you wouldn't mind Mm -hmm. just kind of, and I want to get to also your emperor and your joker, because I think that that's really important and we'll, we'll get to that. But if you wouldn't mind just kind of taking us through a journey of, you know, you're thinking about this and you know what who these doctors are within us and 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 what that what that looks like yeah what happened was some of my you know it takes about 7 years to complete the training i outlined cuz it's it's not just academic where you sit there and study like a university you t- take a block of training that ra- ranges from 5 to to 12 days depending on the level of training And then you go, you're supposed to apply it for six months. And then you have in the academy that we built, you have mentors guiding you. You have a team of people interacting with you. Um, So it's a lot, you know, I I think I doubt anyone does a more comprehensive assessment in the world than, than my system offers. 
And so what happened was some of my most intelligent instructors and students came to me without the other ones knowing it and said, Paul, I'm overwhelmed because I can evaluate people for eight hours and most people are so screwed up. What do you do when every system is maxed out? What do you do when there's 50 problems? How do, I, how do you decide what to do with these people? And I didn't realize that they were having a hard time prioritizing these things. It just hadn't dawned on me because it's innate in me. So I said to my soul, I said, okay, how do I, how do I bring this process I use inside into a tangible practice for people so they can structure this information into what's the most important and what's the least important. Where do you start? And so one morning I was going for a, a walk in the, in the woods for about five miles out by our house trails, you know, hiking trails. And I said to my soul, will you please help me with this? And my soul said, get your notebook. And so I walked out the door and I said, well, what should I start with? And my soul said, what's the most important thing in your life? So I thought for a second and I said, love. My soul said, write that down. Number one, love. And then it dawned on me. I always ask people, what is your dream? What do you love more than your problems? And I quote, Jerry Wesh, who says, if you have a big enough dream, you don't need a crisis. And most people don't have a dream. So they're just going from crisis to crisis. And I always start my coaching by saying, what is it that you're here to really do? And I don't always mean your big dream, like your whole life. I mean, like when Gabby came to me, it was, I need to get my golfing skills better and get my body balanced out. So I knew, okay, she's got a reason to do what I'm going to ask her to do. Because having coached and been a therapist for so many people, if they don't know why they're doing it, the pain isn't enough. Once you get someone out of pain, they'll just keep doing the same shit. You have to find what they're really willing to grow for. Okay. So I said, okay, one love your dream. And my soul says, yes. And my soul then says, what does the number two mean to you? Cheers. Cheers. You're having more fun than I am, Paul. Uh, when I went through my midlife crisis, I said, it's got to be fun or I quit. <laughs> and so uh, my, my soul says, what does the number two mean to you? And I said, well, two is yin and yang. It's the two primary forces that create the universe. And my soul says, what are you doing with every evaluation? Finding the imbalance between the masculine and the feminine. Where are they doing too much and where they're doing too little? My soul says, write that down. <laughs> Then I said, okay, what's the next most important thing? My soul said, how many choices do you really have in life? So I walked for about a mile meditating on it. I said, three, the optimal, the suboptimal, and do nothing. My soul said, you should write that down. And then I said, okay, I see the pattern emerging here, number four. Now I'm to number four. Number four didn't come as quick. My soul said there's four key categories 
to any life. Four. If there's not these four things, then you're going to be out of balance for sure. And so I meditated and guessed and guessed, and I kept being wrong. And so the next day, I was going into the gym, to, and I always study when I work out. So I went. Wait, you study when you work out? Yeah, I don't like working out with people. I, I go in. I don't need to think when I work out. I've been lifting weights since I was 12. I can do it blindfolded, drunk, and stoned. So um, what I do is I play uh, educational courses, university courses, and I just write notes on my rest periods. And so I was studying a course at that time and my soul said, that's not the right course. I need to give you a message. I said, well, what do you want? So my soul guided me into my room where I keep all my course materials and, you know, thousands of DVDs and things that I bought and had studied and I have a pile that I'm on deck for. And my soul took me to a shelf with a bunch of old dusty CDs on it, stuff from the 80s. And I, my soul directed me to this course on herbology that I'd studied in like 1980 something and said, listen to that course again. And I said, really? Yes. So in about five minutes in the introduction, this guy's telling about the history of herbology. And he says, in the Roman days and in the times of Hippocrates, physicians believed that any health problem or disease came from what they called the three doctors, Dr. Diet, Dr. Quiet, and Dr. Happiness. And a lightning bolt went through me. I said, ah, but they're missing a doctor, Dr. Movement, because people in those days weren't sedentary. Even to do your laundry would be what we call a workout today. And immediately, Dr. Happiness, what do I love? What are my values? Dr. Diet, how do I eat for my individual needs? Not stupid shit. Dr. Quiet, rest and introspection. And Dr. Movement. And I knew intuitively that's how I was looking at life, but I just hadn't got a way to put it in words. And that was all they said. And I built the whole model. It just took that one touch. The Buddhist Zen masters call that the touch. They say, Someone says to the Zen master, how long will it take to become enlightened if I study with you? And the Zen master says, it may take 15 seconds and it may take 30 years. It's up to you. <laughs> so, um, so there was my four, the four doctors. What is your dream? Where are you out of balance? What choices are you willing to make to come back into balance? And how do you categorize those efforts in accordance to what's happy making for you and what are your values? How much movement do you give yourself physically, emotionally, and mentally? What's your diet physically, emotionally, and mentally? And are you resting effectively physically, emotionally, and mentally? And are you introspecting and reflecting on what you're creating through your choices each day? Because if you're not, you're just flying blind and you have a real tendency to build a shadow that controls your life from behind. So then I taught all my students how to look at a person's life and all the data from where's the imbalance? What is the dream? 
what's the most important imbalance relative to the requirements of the dream and first baseline health and how much rest do they need and what type of introspective work do they need for their own spiritual growth and what exercise program will bring them into balance and then how do you build them up to be the person that is required to live their dream from X game athlete to grandma that wants to play with kids. And all of a sudden it was like a lightning bolt through my students. It was obvious to them. Then they could take eight hours of assessment data, pages and pages and pages of material and know exactly what was the most important thing to do first, where the biggest deficit was in a person's life. And I show people over and over again, there is no such thing as a truly healthy three doctor, two doctor or one doctor person. You can have a dream, you can be athletic, you can eat well, but if you don't rest, you're in deep trouble. Yep. If you rest and you have a dream and you work out, but you eat wrong, you're in trouble. If you dream and eat and rest well, but you don't move well, you're in trouble. Yeah. If you move well, eat well and rest well, but you don't know why you're here and you're not doing what makes you happy, you're in trouble. You're a, a healthy, unhappy person. And that's not a healthy person. No. So that is what is called an, a, a reductio ad absurdum. You cannot take life lower than those four categories. And if you're missing one, you're going to be somebody's patient. We're going to say a quick thank you to one of our sponsors and get right back to the show. If you're in the market or you've been curious about blue light blocking glasses, somebody gave me a pair of blue blocks about two years ago. I'm always just trying to find ways to you know, get it done at night, but not maybe be exposed to so many bright lights. And, and you know, you're not going to make your house dark. So somebody gave me a pair of blue blocks. And then when COVID hit, I did research and get them for my girls because they were looking at their computer all day long, doing their schoolwork. And what I love about this company, the more I learned about it, is the fact, besides the fact, okay, I'm not going to lie, that they've got, you know, over 20 styles and frames. So it's really fashionable. Um, but that they consider the science. The founders were looking for a company to buy from, and they just were not happy with the quality and the lack of science behind leading blue light blocking uh, glasses. So what they did is they made blue blocks, and blue blocks are backed by the latest science and made under optics laboratory conditions. I mean, we're talking about your eyes, all the way in Australia. And they can make them prescription, non-prescription, readers. And there's a lot of conversation around blue light. And, you know, maybe it's tough on your eyes or you, if it does impact your sleep, right? Like for me, it's low energy, you get a little heightened anxiety. So this is just a way to defend against that. And they are giving you a great offer today. If you go to blueblocks.com, that's B L U. B L O X dot com and use the code Gabby G A B B Y at checkout. Not only will they give you 15% off your order, they offer you free shipping anywhere. And you talk in the, and I encourage anyone to go online and because I, I love uh, the presentations of the last four doctors that you'll ever need to know. And at one point you take your shirt off and you, you say to people, Hey, your doctor and your trainer, um, they should, they should practice as in close to the nude as possible. So you can see how their program is working for them. Amen. I tell people, if you don't wear it, you shouldn't teach it now. And, and, and I've had many students get very insecure. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. 
I had a person in class that was probably 60 pounds overweight. And they said, Paul, but should I actually be in this classroom then? Cause I'm still fat. I said, okay. How fat did you used to be before you started my training? They said, well, I've actually lost a hundred pounds since I took HLC one. I said, ah, and I said, so you're 60 pounds overweight. How many people in the world are more overweight than you? Millions. Mm. So you are an authentic teacher to everyone that you have superseded with your own program. And that is a massive audience. And you're still working on it every day and practicing the principles. That makes you an authentic teacher. I said, you only get yourself in trouble when you stop practicing and pretend you know what you're doing. And you're coaching people that are fitter and healthier than you and telling them what's wrong with them. But if you're in the game and they say, well, you're a bit fat. Why are you telling me this? You say, well, here's a picture of me two years ago. And then they'll go, ah, I get it. So I tell people you should not work in medicine or any branch of health if you can't do it in your underwear. Because if you're not, if your own way of relating and living does not produce the results someone's paying you to get, then you're not an authentic teacher. You're just a, a photocopier, a cut and paste expert, and that's destroying the entire planet, that type of approach. That's the intellectual approach. How do you, because you, you're, I mean, listen, you, you talked about for 16 years and beyond, you can, even when you couldn't really afford it, you continued your own education, spent hard dollars, traveled around, would swap with other experts on continuing, you know, your own education. So at this place, when you have work, you're still producing and creating and, you know, writing and doing podcasts and you have a young family, where do you find, and, and then not to mention, I feel like even when we're disciplined, technology is an interesting infringement on our time and space. How do you find the time at this place? Because you could sit and be like, you know what, I, I I'm sort of dialed. I know what's happening. How do you put your practice in place? But also, how do you keep adding new information, new input? Well, I found out a long time ago that the only way I could really do the inner work that I had to do to keep growing spiritually which is deeper into contact with my higher self or my soul and, and, and put the ego in the back seat was I had to get up real early in the morning. So I often get up at around four o'clock in the morning and I come to work. I'm usually in here by four 30. I do about an hour of prayer and, and various techniques that my soul guides me to do sometimes astral work, spirit guide work, power animal work, um, a lot wait, of different wait what's power animal work well power animals are expressions of the psyche and when the when the soul is having a hard time reaching the ego awareness it often will use an animal to speak to you so for example somebody might notice all of a sudden dragonflies keep showing up in their life and they're like why are all these there's I haven't seen a dragonfly in years. And in the last month, they've been everywhere. And so what's happening is the soul is using a vehicle to communicate with you that you'll pay attention to. And that it often means that the dragonfly spirit is coming to you in soul. 
in 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 your psyche. So the so the souls puts outside of you a synchronicity. In other words, what's happening inside of you that you're unconscious of is attracting what's outside of you. The dragonfly inside attracts the dragonfly outside. The wolf on the inside attracts the wolf on the outside. And because we've got millions of years of evolution in nature with animals, animals used to be more like family to us. We had to know their sounds, their, their ways, because one, a lot of them would eat us. Two, a lot of them were our food. Three, a lot of them kept us alive. Food, shelter, clothing, tools. Uh, you know, think of what you do with animals and plants. It's massive. And plants can be power animals too. So the DNA, what scientists call junk DNA from a spiritual perspective is actually our record of evolution through the entire history of this earth. So you have the genes of every plant and you have the genes of every animal on this planet inside of our DNA, which they call junk DNA. And so when we're being reached by spirit, the, the DNA of a wolf or the DNA of a dolphin or the DNA of a whale or the DNA of a butterfly or the DNA of a dragonfly gets activated. And so when people come to me and they're not ready to work with deeper spiritual concepts like a spirit guide, I find it very easy to teach people how to work with a power animal and I'm clairvoyant so I can look inside of somebody and see what power animals are there or I do a ceremony for them to meet their power animals and spirit guides. And I've had profound experiences. I, I won't get too much of a conversation for that, but many of my clients have had profound experiences. I mean, deep, deep, deep emotional experiences where they're just even alpha male types are just crying because of what comes out when they actually know how to access what's inside of them. And so the power animal. Now I'll give you an example. Uh, a lot of people that come to me with digestive problems have an alligator power animal and the alligator links to the digestive tract. And so what, what happens is, is the alligator is also a symbolic representation of the reptilian brain or our brainstem, which is where all of our basic survival instincts are. So what I found is a lot of people with intestinal problems have an alligator inside of them trying to get their attention to say, pay attention to what you must pay attention to, or your life is going to destroy you. And so the reptilian drive is, am I safe? Is my territory safe? If I'm safe, then it's time to get some food. And if I'm safe and I have food, then it's time to procreate. So our reptilian system is wired and it's the most ancient part of our brain. So it's wired to Am I safe? And that means, is my home or my territory or my hunting ground safe? Today, that means, do I have enough money to pay my bills, right? We don't hunt, we, we, we work. Um, two, once you're safe, then the body orients itself towards food because if somebody's threatening your survival, it's not a good time to eat, but it is a good time to protect yourself. And only when you have food and safety should you procreate. But most people now have it backwards. They have 
sex and make children when they have no sense of safety and security and they're eating shit all the time, which decreases the survivability of the offspring, which goes against the reptilian drives. So the reptilian power animal is there to awaken us to what we're not paying attention to as a soul living in a body that's part of nature that has to succumb to the laws of nature or it will perish. Right. So once a person integrates the concept of the alligator or the crocodile, I say, though, here's the qualities of the alligator and the crocodile. This is the personality. These are the things that are important to them and they're wired into you. Pay attention to this in your life. Why do you spend so much money on shit you don't even need and stress the shit out of yourself and work yourself to death and you don't even have time to eat right or rest and you're also having sex with people you're not in love with. And if one of them gets pregnant, you're going to have a whole world of trouble. And so will that child. So you see the power animal concept is much easier for less spiritually evolved people because the instinct that we have toward the connection to animals is so strong. Even the hardcore scientists don't deny that they love their dog. Right. Right. So what, what, what's your power animal? Uh, I have, I think 11, um, <laughs> yeah, my root chakra power animal is the bee. My second chakra power animal is the sea turtle. My third chakra power animal is the hawk family. My fourth chakra power animal is the butterfly family. My fifth is the black panther. My sixth is the grizzly bear family and the raven. My seventh is the spider my power animal for intuition is the rattlesnake. My power animal for thinking is the eagle. For sensation, it is the deer. And for feeling, it's the dolphin. And I have an owl at the heart chakra as well. And they all meet with me and tell me, pay attention to this. Or if I'm coaching somebody and there's something I'm missing, the owl will show up and say, oh, there's something they're not telling you. You better ask them about whether they're were sexually abused as a child because they were a Catholic child. They went to Catholic school and a lot of the things that are going on smell like an unresolved unconscious sexual wound. That's not consciously been addressed. And that's why they've got so much digestive issues and so much problems in their sexual life. So the power animals, you see, you have to work with them enough that they come out of the unconscious into the conscious. So you, have a sense of when they're trying to get your attention and what it feels like. It's almost like, you know, the feeling of someone staring at you mm -hmm. and you turn around and every time someone's staring at you. And for you, that's quite often, I'm sure. Settle down, Paul. <laughs> and so, so what happens is I'll have this feeling inside of me that somebody wants my attention. And because I work with them regularly, I know if that feeling's in my throat, it's the black Panther or if I'm having a hard time figuring something out, like the four doctors, I have to go ask the rattlesnake for help. Um, and then when I bring my consciousness to the power animal, it becomes a symbol, which is a gateway to the field of mind that contains that type of information. So all power animals are actually symbols and all symbols are connected to a, a field of activity in what we would call the collective mind. So the rattlesnake's characteristics are that it's very sensitive to vibration. 
it waits for its prey and it moves very quickly when it's time to strike like lightning. And that's exactly how intuition functions. You wait and you wait and you wait and boom, you get a lightning flash and it contains the whole book in one flash. Thinking chops everything to pieces. So for example, if I'm thinking about something, my eagle says, you're too close to the screen to see the big picture. So I can actually move my astral body inside the eagle and the eagle will fly up and take me to wherever I need to go to look down and see what's going on. And I'm looking through the eyes of the eagle. So it takes time to learn how to make, this is called shape shifting. It takes time to learn, but most people don't have the discipline to do these practices. I've spent my whole life devoting at least an hour, sometimes up to three hours a day and letting my soul guide me to these different stages through my career of what to focus on and then master the tools so that I can use those tools to help other people and have enough of them to say, okay, what's the right tool for Gabby versus Laird or uh, somebody's mother that's 70 versus a 20 year old. Otherwise you just become sort of a one tool every, you know, if all you got in your pocket is a hammer, everything looks like a nail kind of therapist. Yeah. Which but is most power of animals it. are great. So you, you have a, you have, you've created space in the morning for yourself because I, I find that that's one of the hardest things is like once you've even been armed with a little bit of information and it's sort of going okay, it, it's like, you know, not wanting to have that tragedy to make, to create and to grow right. and to expand, but mm -hmm. to be seeking and to be still to hear, because a lot of times to your point, I get a lot, I've been, because I'm also in the thick of parenting, I can hear a lot of the messages through my children uh -huh. where I, what I need to be sort of paying attention to and working on. Yeah. Um, because they want to let you know, first of all. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's God. Yeah. So I've, I've learned to not fight that, but to go, you know what, I'm going to take a look at that and, and, and such. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people to your point where <clears throat> they are building a shadow and, and, and um, it's just kind of barely making it, you know, like barely yeah. getting, barely getting enough sleep, barely getting going yes. to the ba bathroom, barely yeah. trying to figure out how to make yourself, you know, find this, moments of homeostasis do you in all of this depth of your practice do you just do you ever feel does fear or like the that uncertainty that we most of us experience as humans does it float ever in and out of your day or yourself and it, or are you sort of have you found the tools to be like oh I recognize that and I I put it over here well a, a, an element we haven't talked about is I've done well over 400 shamanic ceremony ceremonies <laughs> with plant medicines. And, you know, I'm trained. I did a year of training with a doctor and learned how to do it properly. I became a, a licensed medicine man and spirit guide. And I have done a lot of extremely deep work. I would take each medicine or drug and take the dose up progressively over time until I hit psychosis so I could see what would happen to people, you know? So I've done extremely high doses of LSD mushrooms and all sorts of stuff. And I've noted this all, I researched it like I research everything. 
but I went so deep into my psyche and I went, I honestly, it's a miracle that I'm here because I've done journeys that were so deep. I was just into the complete and utter abyss of God. And I didn't even know my name. If I was alive, how I would get back. I was just fucking gone. And I mean, I'm an ex 82nd airborne division paratrooper. I've been so deep that when I came out, I found myself laying on the ground, crying for my mother, begging mom, mom, help, help. I was literally falling through the abyss at the speed of light. And I was just becoming everything and nothing at the same time. And the ego was completely annihilated. And, and I didn't even know if I was alive or dead. I, I, I somehow managed to get back. And so the point I'm making is I've been through the death experience many times. I've reached these deep states on Tai Chi. I studied with a Tai Chi master and practiced for 18 years religiously. I've been to complete and utter no mind with no drugs. I've had many Samadhi experiences meditating where I become one with the universe with no drugs. So I've done both to make sure I'm not bullshitting myself. But the point is, is that there's not so much that scares me, but there's a lot that deeply concerns me, like what's going on in the world right now. Yeah. You know, with my knowledge and my experience, I know what a rat smells like. I know what a lie looks like. And I know what manipulation, trickery and deception looks like. And I know we have a long history of the same types of people playing the same stupid games. And that's exactly why I wanted to get the hell out of the military when I saw what we were really being used for. I'm like, okay, I didn't come here to be rich people's uh, go boy to go steal shit. That's not why I'm here. So I said, I'm out of this little sick club. Um, and I've had many deep conversations with friends of mine that are Navy SEALs and people like that, but they're, they're so in love with the hunt that they, they ignore the truth. But that's their karma. Um, so the point I'm making is, is that like a lot of people get very scared, I get concerned because now I have to make very careful decisions. Because if I don't really make a careful decision, I can't contribute to finding the solution and I become part of the problem. And I don't like that. And I could make a decision that puts my family in harm's way. And I have, you know, a lot of famous people see me for help movie stars and Laird Hamilton's and Gabby Reese's and uh, Danny Ways and Chuck Norris's and, you know, people come to me with real, real serious problems. I mean, drug addiction, sex addiction, murder, you know, the list is long. If, if it exists on the planet, I've sat with it. And so I've learned that I, getting scared doesn't help anything. And I know the worst thing that'll happen is you die. And, and, and that's not so terrible. If you, if you can get over the shock of losing your ego, as Yogananda says, death is like having a thousand orgasms at once. And I've had some single orgasms that were worth dying for, but, uh, uh, so yeah, I, I just get really concerned. And right now I am very concerned. Do you, when you step back and think about it, because I think all of us are look, like, and I feel like almost like the deeper you get into certain practices of creating space from you, from the self, yes. you know, it's like, is, is like, well, what is it 
like for you, have you, have you at this moment, and I could ask you in three years and it would be a different answer, I would imagine, but have you ever touched or felt or seen like, what the hell is this? What is the meaning? What the hell, what are we doing? You know, oh, yes. Like- That's what my new book's about. I'm working on a new book with a workbook and I'm going to have a whole online program to support people in the teachings, but my this is new this December, right? Or is this a December? Uh, I'm, ho- I'm hoping, yeah, I'm hoping too. It's a big book though. Way to it's... put you, way to put you on the hook there, Paul. But I mean, it, like, it, have you, do you brush through it or do you just say, I'm going to contribute as the tool and the purpose and the genius that I am. And when you, when we talk about genius, it's like genius is really the essence of each person, not it's the soul. Yeah. Yeah. So is it is it sort of like I'll just stay focused on that and let it be as it is, or is there is there some bigger understanding for you personally? There's a bigger understanding because I'm part of the collective, just like you are. Right. So the, the the bigger understanding is that what we call God, and I'm not talking about a religious God in the sky that's you know keeping track of how often you masturbate or cheat on your spouse or eat too many cookies. That's a childish God for, for people that just haven't grown up yet. But uh, I'm talking about source, pure potential. I'm talking about unconditional love. I'm talking about what science, quantum physicists call the zero-point field. I'm talking about the intelligence that creates the universe as its own mind and body. And, and to put it in a nutshell, what is behind the universe cannot know itself without something to interact with. Plotinus said the the soul's greatest danger is its addiction to matter because the soul in and of itself is light. It's invisible. You cannot see it. So the soul can't know itself until it begins to interact with matter. But the problem is the soul falls so fully into its creations, it gets caught in them. The point is, is that the psyche has actually got two polarities. At one end, it's pure energy. At the other end, it's matter. And who Gabby is, is standing between those realities. So the pure energy of it is the wholeness of God or the consciousness of all that is expressing itself in individual form, which it has to embody. And the current between those two runs up the chakras and Kundalini rising is the dance of the soul getting its way out of matter to figure out what it really is. And that process produces consciousness. Consciousness is a psychic substance produced not blindly, but in living awareness of opposites. So the the number two in my system is the male and the female, the yin and the yang. Those are the two polarities, light and dark, emptiness and fullness that consciousness or God creates to experience itself. So the entire universe, multiverse or omniverse, however you want to look at it, is really God looking into itself because by definition, what we call God is that for which there is no other. There's nothing behind God. That's why Lao Tzu says, the Tao is older than God. It's blacker than black. It's deeper than deep what he's saying is what god really is is not even a concept that's why he says it's older than god god's not something you can understand rationally 
Because in order to understand something, you have to be able to separate yourself from it. You see, you can know what a cup is, but if it was inside of you hiding, you wouldn't know it was there. Okay. So God has to come into itself and it looks into itself and the act of consciousness of the whole looking into a part, i.e. here I am as Gabby Reese, creates the polarity of pure energy to matter. And what's strung between is the psyche. And so what happens is through that process, a psychic substance is created called experience. So the universe is a virtual reality machine because God mathematically is a zero. And if your mother's a zero, all you can be is a virtual reality, but it's virtually real. So everything that we think of as real is actually the product of something that isn't tangible, that we can't weigh or measure, just like you can't weigh and measure love, but it's very real. So the trick that God has to play on itself is to forget what it is to figure out what it is. So God cannot stay in the state of unity or what is called non-dual consciousness because there can be no subject-object relationship there. See, right now when I'm talking to you, you're the object of my awareness. But what's listening to you is the subject inside of me. If you say I love you to someone, then when you say I, you're talking about the subject, the soul in you, and you is the object of your devotion. So God can't know itself without a subject-object split, and that's what produces mind. Mind is the product of God looking into itself. So what's going on is that God can't know itself until it tries all the potentials within it, those that are in the darkness and those that are in the light, and everything is a weave of the darkness and the light. So because God has no fear of death, there is no death for God. God plays this game we call life, which can be called a dance, or it can be called a drama, or it, it can be called an art show. It, it, uh, you know, what, however you want to look at it, it's correct, a game. And through the experience of what we call good and evil, consciousness is produced, and then God actually knows it is. Then God says, ah, because you see, if you look in the mirror, God's looking at itself. You know, Frank, St. Francis yeah. of Assisi would tell people that kept asking him, how do I find God? He would look at them and say, what you are looking for is what's looking. Okay, there's the answer. What you're looking for is what's looking. An eye can't see itself and teeth can't eat themselves. So the eye can't have a function unless it looks out. But spiritual practice is reversing that and looking in. The first part of our life, we look out at the world, not realizing that we're looking at God. Then we go, okay, there's got to be something deeper going on here than just all these rocks, stones, and trees and people, because a lot of these people are painful to be around. So I got to go inside myself and figure out why do I keep attracting all this shit into my life? And then you meet your shadow and then you meet the unconscious. And then eventually you figure out, oh, shit, this is hilarious. This is hilarious. God's sense of humor is just brutal, wicked. 
I mean, God's willing to be Bill Gates. God's willing to be Adolf Hitler. God's willing to be Mother Teresa, Gandhi, and everything in between. And look at it. Look at the perfection of it. If there was no bad guys, what would the cops do? They'd get fat. They're already fat. If there was no sick people, there'd be no need for doctors and nurses. If there was no sad people, there'd be no psychologists. If there was nobody, if everyone knew how to eat, we'd have no dietary wisdom. If everybody knew how to build a house, there'd be nothing for carpenters to do. So the perfection is everyone brings something to the table to help everybody else. And that's why we dream each other into existence. Because Gabby can't be the carpenter, the engineer, the doctor, the pilot, the mother, the wife, and the star athlete all at the same time. And that's what archetypes are. Archetypes are manifolds in consciousness that draw us into a particular path to contribute to the whole. So to be a mother is an archetypal attraction. To be an athlete is an archetypal attraction because these are basically the root languages of consciousness. God says, in order to explore myself, I have to have bodies, so I need to divide myself into the masculine and the feminine. When those two get together, magic will happen, and a new little G-O-D will be born, and it'll explore itself. And quantum physics shows we are in a real-time feedback loop with the entire universe. Every breath you take, every thought you think is a thought and a breath of the universe itself, but it looks like it's your own but it's hard science. So really each sentient being is like a neuron in the mind of God. And just like if you poke your finger with a sharp object, your toenails know about it instantly. So everything that we do, thought, feeling, action, choice, decision is a process by which God learns what his potential is. If it behaves that way, it experiences that opportunity the problem is God is infinite. So this game never begins and never ends. So I tell people, you might as well get learn what spirituality is because the road is long and the only way out is nirvana. And I got news for you. If you get there, you lose your ego. And 10 seconds later, you might be born as a cockroach or an ant and start the whole process over again. Because by definition, the word nirvana means to blow out or to extinguish. And what you're blowing out is the sense of self, the I, without which you cannot know yourself or love. So we are all here as agents of consciousness, paradoxically, as servants to consciousness, so that what we call God can actually figure out what it is. <laughs> right. We're going to do a quick thank you to one of our sponsors and get right back to the show. One of the really fun things for me is when I'm using something and it's working is just to share it because I have it in my everyday life. I know how it's making me feel and I really can also respect the brand. So I'm excited once again to share with you Ritual and they are vegan friendly multivitamin and it's formulated with high quality nutrients. So everything is sourced and it's bioavailable. One of my pet peeves is People are saying, hey, I'm, I'm busy. I don't have a lot of extra money, um, but I, I do want to support my health. And so they go through the effort of buying a multivitamin, um, maybe trying to research it and paying for it. 
and they don't even realize that a lot of the ingredients aren't even bioavailable. And what you will not find in Ritual is sugars, GMOs, major allergens, synthetic fillers, and artificial colorants. You wouldn't think any of that was in your vitamins, but they really are. And another kind of really fun thing I love about this brand is that a lot of us are opposed to like, you know, the vitamin burp, that they put a little fresh after minty taste delay. So once you take the capsule, you're left with this sort of minty feeling taste in the back of your throat. They make it really easy, light and fun. They also do it specific to male, female, even teens, because at the end of the day, you know, they're scientifically developed to help support different life stages. And so for example, my daughters and you know, myself, we're not taking the same multivitamin. They have wet and dry ingredients together in a clear capsule. So it even looks good. So we know where the ingredients, these high level ingredients are coming from. We know what they're leaving out. We know that it's bioavailable, that you're actually getting the new nutrients and it's fun and they make it really easy. So they have really covered all of the basis and they want to give you a great offer today. So they are saying they will give my listeners 10% off during your first three months. So you'll get your key nutrients without all the garbage. And if you visit ritual.com slash Gabby, you can start your ritual today. Really important is that the multivitamins are delivered to your door every month with free shipping always. You can start snooze, maybe you're gonna take a trip or even cancel your subscription at any time. And if you don't love ritual your first month, They'll just refund your first order. So head to ritual.com slash Gabby and get your savings. I, I find it, <clears throat> I always think it's interesting when I think about you is that you went through this whole series of events, right? Like the difficulty of childhood, military boxing, you know, cutting down trees, a mechanic, um, you know, physiotherapist, all of these things to actually be able to clear the slate to have the bigger conversation, um, or, or, you know, or, you, you know, it's like even the avatar, it's like get the avatar dialed enough so that yeah. there's room to have these conversations. Because I have found even for Laird and I, it's like you go through these series of things. You want to be high performance and you want to hit all these marks and do all the stuff. You've got the Czech Institute. You have people who studied under you've created curriculums just to actually maybe go okay well once i've gotten there then the question becomes bigger and then oh, you yes. go here and then you go oh well now the question's even bigger because we think when we're younger or struggling in a, a certain uh you know matrix oh well if i get there i'll understand and then you get there and and so what i really appreciate um and and something uh, really stuck out for me one time when i ran into you at a at a like at a convention is that you've gone through all of this just to actually have sort of the spirit or bigger or conscious conversation. I, I said to you, because I, I used to ask you if you were going to come visit us, hey, what are you eating? And you'd say, okay, well, it's Monday. Or, okay, it's hoof day or it's, you know, beak day yeah. or whatever. And and then I ran into you and you were like, well, right now I'm um, I'm eating uh, I'm eating vegetarian. My my spirit has said this is what's right for me, right? And mm -hmm. and and I, I want to connect this back to your to your Joker self. Um, and and <laughs> then the I, fool. I yeah, well, and I would call and then I would call you because you know if I need advice on certain things, I will call you uh, if it's eating or moving or just things like that, a resource. And I and I'll say oh, I asked you a couple of years after I go, are you still eating vegetarian? And you mm. said, well, actually, my soul is, 
you know, I've brought back, you know, some types of, you know, meat back into my, into my life. And, and I think when we talk about, you know, earthly survival, it's, it is about this adaptability. Oh, totally. Yeah. And, and you, you've always been a person who have, who has listened Mm -hmm. to yourself when, even if it wasn't popular. Yeah. I got attacked a lot. When I became a vegetarian for, you know, every day I said to myself, are you sure you don't want to eat some meat? I must ask five times. I mean, I was watching the muscle just drop off of me. I went from weighing 189 pounds of hardcore weightlifting, you know, strong man to I lost 24 pounds in about six weeks my body was starving for protein, but my soul said, you cannot do the work I'm taking you through right now, spiritually with all that animal flesh in your body. Cause it lowers your vibration too much. And you're going to be stuck like a four legged animal on the earth plane. You have got to free your psyche up. And I went through some profound experiences. My soul had me also sun gazing for an hour as the sun came up. And as it went down, for that year, which was wild what I learned and experiences that I had, which just that one year of sun gazing could be at a wild book to read. And I was meeting with healers and, and shaman that were coming to me from other dimensions and teaching me techniques for rattling, drumming, for using medicines, for making medicines, for using herbs. I mean, every morning I was up at 3.30, And I was going through sometimes three hours of intensive training. But as the muscle was coming off, it was as though my clairvoyance was just getting stronger and stronger and stronger to like the inner vision was as real as I'm standing looking at my office right now. Mm -hmm. And, And spiritual guides were coming to me. And in every case, what they taught me turned out to be pivotal in somebody's life somebody came to me with a problem and I knew, ah, that's why I got taught this. And I was able to help a lot of people that I would have never been able to help. But at the same time, I I was like, shit, I am not a vegetarian type. (laughs) And it was hard. It was like when I was starving as a boxer, you know, trying to fight at 147 pounds, which is 26 pounds below my walking around weight. It was not easy. It took me three months to come down to fighting weight. So it was a real battle of opposites for me where the animal in me was hungry as hell, but the soul in me was saying, you can get over it. It's only for a while. And every day I'm like, how long is this going to be? Don't worry. Exactly to the day, one year, my soul said, you can eat fish and eggs now. And I watched the muscle come on like freaking magic. It was just growing overnight. And then six months later, my soul said, now you can eat whatever you want. You've got the training I wanted to give you. And now you're legitimate. Meaning you've lived both sides of the coin. There are a lot of people for moral reasons or they just feel better. We've talked a lot about, you know, how people convert food to energy. You have a program um, and I encourage people to to look into all of them where it's really knowing you can be a big muscular person but you don't convert animal protein to energy quickly. So it's, it's that, that personal exploration. But if there are people who go, Hey, listen, I want to live as a vegetarian or a vegan. 
Um, what are the things that they have to do in your mind to support their system if they are choosing not to eat animal protein? What are some of the gaps that it would be helpful for them to fill? Because unfortunately, if, if you're eating that way, there's a lot of substitute foods that are not good for you. Yeah, um, it's bad. It's a bad road if you're not skilled. And the first thing that I would say in answer to the question, because I've rehabilitated more vegetarians that have made themselves sick on their healthy diets than I can count. Um, the first issue and the most common reason for being a vegetarian is they don't want to kill animals. But what I have found through deep exploration and work with soul and power animals and, and nature is that you're only killing an animal if you eat it unconsciously. Everything is something else. Gabby couldn't be here without all the plants and animals she'd eaten, she's eaten, and neither could they be here. 85% of plants are carnivorous. They actually are fed by the fungal mycorrhiza that kill the insects and parasites in the soil and eat them from the inside out and feed them to the plant. So most vegetarians are just not educated as to what's going on right under their nose. The reality of 85% of plants are carnivorous. The other reality is you take the flesh and the body of that animal into you. And when I eat something, I say, thank you, great spirit. Thank you, mother earth. Thank you, father, son, and mother moon. And thank you to the spirit of these animals it is with love and respect that I invite you into my being and together we will make the world a better place for all living beings. So the point I'm making is that when you eat consciously and spiritually, the animal now is upgraded to human because it fuses into you and it is now able to deal with problems that the world has that it can't deal with as an animal. Cows don't vote. Bears don't vote. Chickens don't vote. Fish don't vote. So my point is, is that if we don't eat well, we can't be an agent of change in the world and protect those animals. So if you understand that life and death are just names for two halves of a circle, you're not really killing anything. That's, that's a materialistic concept. But when you bring it in consciously and you use it as a source of nutrition and energy to do your best to add beauty to the world and to make the world a better place for all living beings, that animal now has had a sudden jump in consciousness and it is now contributing to uh, the whole in a way it could not contribute as an animal. When people that work with me and my students and I teach them how to, I'm, many of my students for the first time when I teach them how to pray to their food and how to feel the energy coming off of it, they just break down in tears because they realize everything that they thought was dead is not dead. Mm. Everything. They're, they're, stones are conscious. I prove it to people all the time. It's just that people are so low in their spiritual development that they actually think that matter is all there is. But I always ask them, how does matter organize itself? It can't. Matter is not it does not have an organizing intelligence. This is well stated in alchemy. Earth and water are passive. Fire and air are active. Fire is the symbol for consciousness. It's only because Gabby's fire is alive, her spirit, that that animal body does what she wants it to do and is fed the way she wants to feed it. But if you just sit on the couch and say, okay, body, go for it, 
nothing's going to happen, right? So the, the first point I'm making is with anybody that wants to be a vegetarian, if they're doing it for the wrong reasons, it's not going to be healthy for them. And the most common reason is the fear of killing an animal. But if you kill it physically out of love and bring it into you as a means of bringing it up to human consciousness and letting it contribute to your life so you can contribute to the lives of others and even those animals. That's what we call a sacrifice. And a sacrifice is highly spiritual and sacramental. It is worship. So I worship what I eat and I bring it into the temple I call myself. And I use that consciousness and that energy to know that my thoughts, words, and deeds are either making the world a better place or a worse place for all living beings. From there, you have to look carefully at what your body wants. And, and for example, I had to eat a pile of beans and legumes or I would just starve to death as a vegetarian. I had to find ways to get protein into me and a lot of people don't have the enzymes to pull protein out of fiber. They just don't. They're not designed for it. In fact, I have a whole series called The Honest Vegetarian. Part one is on my podcast, and there's four more parts at chikiva.com, C-H-E-K-I-V-A, which is our social kind of media platform, with me and Matt Walden, one of my senior instructors who's wickedly smart. And we look at all aspects of dieting from straight meat eating to pure vegetarianism and show what it means physiologically and spiritually. But the key thing is getting the balance of proteins and fats. And a lot of these vegetarians are also fat phobics, which is a double edged sword. Now you're not getting enough protein or fat. I see most of them last about three to five years before their adrenals are just cooked and they've got all sorts of serious hormonal regulation problems, women having serious menstrual regulation problems, guys having all sorts of structural problems, mental cognitive problems. I mean, honestly, I've probably rehabilitated in my career 120 vegetarians from diseases and illnesses while they sat there and lectured me on how good their diet was. Right. And I said, well, well, if that's true, then why are you paying me $750 an hour to help you get healthy? <laughs> that I, did, make sense. I, I did. I did listen to the lecture and I do encourage people if they want to dive down um, to, to listen to that. So, Paul, in sensitivity to your time, I do. I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk um, about archetypes. And you even, um, you know, say that. Um, forgive me, I, I saw, I was looking at this one where you, you talk, you encourage people to go to page like 232 of, uh, a, you know, like a tarot book to find out their archetypes, but. Oh yes. That's could, Angelis Arian's book. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could um, just share with us about, you know, sort of the emperor and the joker and, and what, how that's enabled you to, um, you know, take care of, your kingdom, but also, you know, not be tied down to rules and, and, and uh, lanes and how to yeah. encourage people and maybe how to encourage people how to kind of tap into that part of themselves. Yeah. Just so people understand the tarot has 22 mm -hmm. major arcana, which are archetypes. And remember archetype is a primordial form. So just to make it easy, everybody has fingerprints 
So if you think of a fingerprint as an archetype, but each one of us has unique fingerprints. So if you're in the athlete archetype, you can have a million athletes all acting out the athlete as a archetypal concept, but all very different within. And the archetypes are never polarized. They don't have a choice. They don't have, they don't care if you're a good mother or a bad mother, if you're a great athlete or a shitty one, it's just a draw to enact consciousness for the universe in that mode of expression of itself. And there's quantum physical terms I could give to explain it, but it'd be very deep. For example, all trees are in the archetype of the tree, including hat trees and computer tree diagrams, you know, a tree diagram like mm -hmm. software engineers use. So there's an example, the archetype of the tree manifests its treeness anywhere you see that form or pattern. So there's the root of consciousness giving a structure to put meaning to something. So tarot has 22 archetypes. Zero is the fool. One is the magician. Two is the high priestess. Three is the empress. Four is the emperor. Five is the hierophant or spiritual teacher and guide. Six is the lovers. Seven is the chariot, which means going on a journey and getting something done. Eight is strength, which means learn to uh, let your soul guide your ego. Nine is the hermit. Ten is the wheel of fortune, which means your life is mirroring your mind back to you. Eleven is justice. You got to make tough decisions sometimes to balance the scales. Twelve is the hangman. You're either hanging out because you're doing a good job in your life or you're hung up because you're not paying attention to the choices and the beliefs that are driving you. Everybody pay attention to that one. Thirteen is death dealing with what you have to shed or let go of in order to live. 14 is temperance, learning to be temperate with people and yourself. 15 is the devil, which really means freedom. Are you stuck in a belief system or are you willing to be free or are you creating problems all around yourself and blaming everybody else and calling them the devil? 16 is the tower, which is the ego, means be careful when you see that's a trouble card. 17 is the star, your, your full expression of yourself. 18 is the moon looking into yourself so you don't deceive yourself and fill yourself too full of your stardom. 19 is the sun, your day in the sun, living fully. 20 is judgment. Get over it. It's all God. And if you hold on to judgments when you die, you get to live them out in the afterlife until you realize that belief system's not healthy. Uh, 21 is the world which means that's the hero's journey. So the tarot is really Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, but in a more primal, um, long, arch the, the tarot's been around for thousands of years. It was invented by Egyptian priests. Some people don't realize that, but that's what it, where it came from. And so we're all doing these things every day. Right now, you and I are enacting the star because we're the stars of the show. Oh, yeah. Okay, but you have to also be justice because you're watching the time and you don't want to let me run on too much about something. You got to manage it. You don't want it to be too fat. So you're always sitting there as the podcast director managing the scales. Okay, but the point is all of them are in play all the time, except some of them are more important at different stages of your life and sometimes we're acting them out and we're all born your birth sign your birth date can is a formula numerically that you can do the math on which is in a lot of tarot books so when i do the math on mine i turn out to be a 22 
in tarot, there's 22 archetypes. The 22nd is zero. Zero is the fool. That's the beginning and the end of the journey. So there's two types of fools. There's the immature fool or the new soul who's just coming here to <laughs> blow shit up and figure out what life's all about. And then there's the wise fool that's lived so many lifetimes. They've lived through all the archetypes and all the signs of the Zodiac. So they can look at life and see everything that other people can't see because they're caught in the game. So the fool is outside the game. They've lived through it all. So they go, okay, I know war is not a good idea. I know lying to people doesn't work, etc. I know lying to yourself about your diet doesn't work. So the fool is a great therapist or coach because, you know, I say a shaman is somebody who's played all the games you're playing, but is much better at them than you are. Right. So they already know what your story is when you, when you're, if, in other words, don't bullshit a fool or a shaman, because if they're a real fool and a real shaman, they've already lived that story out and they know ex just like mommy knows when kids are lying. Right. So a good therapist knows can smell the skunk. So 22 equals four. So my soul path is the emperor who is the master of creating with earth, water, fire, and air in the external world, building a kingdom. And what did I do? I built an institute. Right. And I also am an alchemist and I built an entire system of alchemy called Czech life process alchemy. And so you see the emperor and also emperors, Laird's a very emperor-like person. Emperors control their environment. If someone's irritating them, it, they won't last long. If somebody's cocky and full of themselves, it won't last long because the emperor has a real measure of who's who because he's had to become an emperor. He's had to earn that right. So the old warrior knows who the real warriors are, no matter what comes out of their mouth. So the emperor then gives me this sense of kingdom, but an emperor is a dangerous person without an empress because the emperor is very masculine. And he's a usually uh, a skilled warrior that climbed the ladder and got to the point where he said, enough warring, I've got my kingdom. But they see things very objectively. So they need the queen or the empress to give them the information about people's wants, feelings, and needs, or they rule too objectively and can be ruthless and destructive. So every emperor needs an empress to balance him or he becomes a danger to himself and other people. So two and two is 22. And my personality path is the fool. It means I came into this world to put the obvious in front of people that they can't see. And then when they see it, they're going to criticize it. So you look at the phases all New ideas are first violently opposed. Second, they are used with scorn. And finally, they are used as if they always existed. When I brought the Swiss ball to the exercise industry, I was violently criticized. Then I was accepted with scorn. And balls were used only by intelligent people like the best athletes in the world. And then... I go into the gym and trainers tell me I need to get off the ball because I'm doing dangerous things and they have no idea. I'm probably one of the most knowledgeable people on this planet on how these balls work and what you can do with them. And so they treat me like 
I'm a second class citizen. And I go, I'm curious, do you know where these balls came from and how they got into your gym? Go look on your internet and type Paul check and see what happens. And I've had several trainers come back to me so freaking embarrassed. It just blew their mind. I say, I think I'm safe in your gym. You'll be okay. You worry about the other people. But so the fool is the pioneer and you can always tell who the pioneer is because they've got arrows in their back. The fool is the guy driving, walking down the street naked with a lampshade on his head that everybody attacks, but really it's they're jealous that he's that free and they wish they were that free. So the fool comes into the world to show you the parts of yourself that you're afraid to live out. But if you don't, you'll never be whole. So the fool's path is tough because people attack him and then later realize the truth of what he or she was telling them. And a fool is often a shaman or a trickster uh, or a jester, uh, somebody that doesn't always look so smart or educated, but turns out to be a big surprise. <laughs> you know, I, so speaking of your empress, you know, I would say Penny, because um, I, I called Penny before maybe mm -hmm. 10 days ago and I was like, hey, listen, I, what, am, what am I missing? What is the thing? Cause it's, it's like, the thing is people can, they see things about Laird and I'm like, you don't, you're not even seeing the real point. Like yeah. the thing for me about Laird is Laird's ability to show up. Yeah. And there's this relentless pursuit with this combination of still trying to show up in his real life every day, which I find yeah. fascinating. And, and so we talked about, and she said that your ability to synthesize information, um, is, is so extraordinary. And, and I asked her, I go, why are you there still? And, and <laughs> no, cause I, you know, I have to, I ask myself that, like, why, I think it's healthy for people to be like, why am I here? And yeah. because I'm, I'm dedicated to this. And she said, obviously besides loving you and every, all the obvious stuff, it was, it was the real true belief in what you're doing and mm -hmm. and in your mission and i and i thought to have somebody who's as close to you for as long as penny has been to genuinely understand admire support respect your mission um i thought that that was more powerful than almost anything else because she knows yeah she knows. penny penny's the keel on my sailboat she's the one that yeah. Keeps me grounded, tells me not to swear so much. <laughs> she, she, she tries to take the wild fool and, and bring him to the point of being civilized enough that people will listen Yes, without rejecting me. And so she's been my great teacher and my greatest, greatest love. I mean, Penny has, Penny has suffered so much attack because insecure people will uh, go to her and just shout at her and just tell them how much of an asshole I am and go off on her to the point she's sometimes in tears because they're too chicken to come to me. Yeah. But she knows what they don't know. And what they don't know is Penny is a Cambridge graduate with three master's degrees and she's a pilot and she's with me because she knows that what I teach is for real. When Penny first met me, it was at a three-day workshop, and she came up to me and said, Paul, I learned more in three days from you than I did in my entire master's.
master's degree program in exercise and sports science at Colorado State University. So when a woman that smart realizes who you really are and devotes her life to you, there's a reason because she's smart enough to have anything she wants and, and could have been a millionaire on her own. And, and, and also to let me have an open relationship and to have now two wives and, and to mother kids that are not her own. Penny is ultimately the Buddha that shows me what it looks like to be God in the world. Anyone can be God in meditation when nobody's around. But if you want to see what God looks like in the world, I just point right to my wife. And, and she's ultimately my teacher because when I can't keep my cool, she can. When, like when people start really yeah. irritating me, yeah. I want to just smack them and she figures out how to, to wake them up politely. Yeah. I'm still learning a lot from her. But I think, Paul, people have to realize that anytime anybody is trying to listen to their own soul's mission like you, Um, And many people are all around the world. Like they have this calling, they have this instinct. There's got, there is a weird balance between a brashness and a confidence. um, But it's also directly linked to a hypersensitivity. And Uh so it's, 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 they, it's almost like you also need somebody to get in there and kind of protect you at times. Yes, Um, I do. and And I think they misconstrue it. Like one of the things I really appreciate about you is, is that I, I know how much you, how sensitive you are. And I just think it's really important um, for people to, to be able to understand that to come out in the world and go, I think there's some new or different ways to do it, or this is the way I'm feeling it, um, is it's not easy. Like no. the, ass, the ass kicking it takes, but that in a way, what's the alternative, right? It's, you can't turn against yourself. No, nope. you can't, you can't, if you do, you'll, you'll get sick. That's it. So I just, I just want to remind people of that because you're a living testament to that. And I've watched you for many years and, and I want to just tell you here how much I appreciate that. And thank um, you. I appreciate that. And, and I've watched you for many years and I appreciate <laughs> you too. And, and Laird, uh, you know, I've watched many of the interviews you've done all over the place. And I always deeply love and respect that your your message the two of you if lived by anybody will enhance a person's life and bring them in touch with the reality of love life and relationship and commitment and um sorry i'm starting to cry um you know laird can tell you i've sent him many text messages i'll come across something all of a sudden I'll be looking at a video on YouTube about some topic and a Laird Hamilton video pops up. And I thought, Oh, let me see what Laird's up to. Or, you know, somebody will tell me, have you ever seen this interview with Laird? I know you're his friend. And and, Oh yeah, I'll look at it. And I, I, I just feel so grateful that both of you have taken your life process and your life experience and given it to so many people so that they have a better chance of not, living a life of unnecessary pain and problems and confusion. And that's really, we're in harmony that way. 
and so I don't think that what I'm doing is any different than what you're doing. I'm just being me and you guys are doing right. it your way. And, and that's what we're all here to do. That's what love looks like. That's what yeah. God is. That is right. God. That's the real God. That's the verb of it. If, if someone, and, and I just have two more questions. If someone is sitting there and, um, and again, I'll direct everybody to everything we've talked about and to, to the Institute and to, and to your books and to your podcast. But if someone is sitting there and they're just like, I don't even know where to pick up the thread. I don't know where, because I'm really interested in supporting people that they have not had any support. They never caught a break. They didn't come up for air. They, did, they were always behind the eight ball. Is there a book? Is there a lecture? Is there something that you think would be a good initiator into the conversation for them tapping into some of these things that we're talking about today? Yeah, my PPS Success Mastery Program level lesson one is how to find and live your legacy or your, your dream. What's your life all about? Why are you here? So it takes you through the 10 components of a, of a real life dream. Like there's 10 components that you have to be conscious of and your dream changes from stage to stage, right? You and I have all seen dream changes. Um, but if you aren't conscious of those 10 components, your ego can direct you into what looks like something fantastic, but turns out to be a pain in the ass. And if you don't have the tools to clear your blocking factors, right? So the course shows you how to find your own blocking factors. And it's step one of a 12 series of lessons. But the most important lessons of those 12 lessons, which are the roadblocks that I saw blocking all my clients, I, I synthesize it. There's 12 things that stop people from living fully. And I did a lesson on each of them. And if, if you get lesson one, how to find and live your dream, lesson two, self-management, how to use your mind effectively. And lesson three is the science of effective goal setting. So you know how to structure your energy and your effort. Those first three lessons are what I call the foundation lessons, because if you don't have those in place, no sense having fan, fancy chandeliers because your house is coming down anyhow. Amen. So I have a, I've been having a conversation. Um, my now 13 year old started uh, hiding behind walls and attacking Laird um, and jumping out and like, you know, maybe hitting him in the private area. Oh yeah. I got, I got and, a couple of kids that do and, that too. <laughs> and she, but then she would bark, always be ready. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> always be ready. And I yeah. think in a way in life, you know, this idea of adaptable or, and trying to, I always say, I, I try to have a practice that helps me go to a baseline to work yeah. from, you know, mm -hmm. do you have anything? Cause it's impossible to be ready. Life is, you know, that's not the yeah. point, but do you have any, um, you have all these things in place, your movement, you know, your, your meditations, all of these practices, but that help you sort of for whatever it is, always be ready because most of us try to do it through controlling our environment. And yeah. I'm trying to, I'm trying to encourage people to figure out the way to do it where it, you know, you're fine. You, you move into those spaces as you need to, you know, like the, I, you know, I liken it to the coconut tree, the wind blows, the bugger lays down, stops, it stands up to me. That's being ready. Mm -hmm. I, I think for me, having studied all the world religions quite deeply, I always just hear Buddhists speaking in my head 
the only universal law is impermanence. So for me, it, it's really don't get too attached to things, especially material things. Um, sometimes you got lots of money, sometimes you don't. Sometimes sex is plentiful, sometimes it's a dry period. Whatever it is, it comes and goes, but life gets shitty when you expect it to be the same all the time. And that's the domain of the ego. The ego actually hates change. It does not like to have to work too hard. It wants to stay relatively unconscious, play a video game, watch TV, eat the same things, do the same things so that your life is seemingly consistent and reliable, but that's not really living and there's no evolution in that. So I just... Two things I always remind myself, impermanence and change is the nature of the universe, and this too shall pass. So when you're in a tough situation of some kind, just this too shall pass, because the law of change means the shitty days have to become better too. So if you kind of just ride that surfboard of undulation, and no, don't get overly attached to the good times. Definitely enjoy them, but don't think it's going to be that way forever or you're a fool and not the kind I was talking about earlier. <laughs> and, and don't think life is going to be shitty all the time because if you believe that, you stop being creative and that's our responsibility is to be creative. So I, I try to just balance those two out. Accepting that change is, is how the universe breathes and knowing that anything shitty can only be shitty for a while, unless you keep adding shitty to it. Right. Well, um, Mr. Paul Chuck, I could obviously talk to you forever and ever. And when I know when your new book comes out, I won't put you on the hook for December, but whenever that is, um, I, I would love to talk, talk to you about that. And, and I also really appreciate your willingness to stick your neck out because thank you. That, yeah. yeah. That, <laughs> the worst thing that'll happen is I'll die. <laughs> and, and then I can fucking lay down for a while. <laughs> right now I got kids to raise, so uh, I'm yeah. going to hang in there. But uh, all right. Well, you know what? Thank you. And a lot of love. And I always love being able to hang out with Gabrielle Reese. So, you know, an interview with you is actually I shut all interviews off. But Penny said, how about Gabby Reese? I said, oh, I, I'll do that one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind-the-scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.